I've titled the message, Love's Final Appeal. Love's Final Appeal. This theme of love is found a couple times in these verses. But overall, if you are a... Um, what is the word? My, my Latin is failing me, but there's the word for sequential exposition of one verse to the next. Uh, if you're a purist on those things, you will be a little disappointed today because today's message is not going through every word of each of these 10 or so verses, but rather is zeroing in on verses 13 and 14. We might make a few comments on the other verses, but I believe that verses 13 and 14 are, are sort of the theme or the heartbeat of this final concluding section, and I'd rather spend some time focusing on that rather than speculating about the names of some people that are not really mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, such as Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and those figures. So instead of spending equal amounts of time over the entire uh, remaining 10 verses, we're going to dig in and focus on verses 13 and 14. So I've titled the message, Love's Final Appeal. You can go to the next slide. Point number one. Be watchful. Be watchful. My New King James says, watch. Your ESV says, be watchful. It's the same thing, same point. Be watchful. Other ways to describe this idea would be by saying, be awake, or wake up, or be on the alert. It is the same expression used to call believers to be presently watching. Not only presently watching in general, but this expression is used in the New Testament many times to say, be presently watching for the second coming of Christ. Be watchful. Keep your eyes fixed towards heaven. Be watchful. A whole sermon on eschatology could, be, could divert right here to say, if your eschatology tells you not to be watchful, discard it and go back to something that's more biblically faithful. Be watchful. Be longing for the return of Christ. If someone says, Jesus can't return for another 50,000 years because, well, it doesn't fit my chart, tell them they need a new chart. Be watchful. This expression, be watchful, though, is not used in this text to speak of eschatology and the return of Christ, but rather it is focused within the context of the local church. What should you be watchful for in the local church? Well, before we get into that, let's consider the image of this watchfulness. Imagine, th th these are military terms that are used here. Be watchful, watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong. This is all military language. So consider with me a soldier in a guard tower looking over the horizon, looking with binoculars because your eyes can't really see that far. It's also be a great spot to make a, a, a global earth joke or not a joke. The reason you can't see clear to England is because of, well, imagine a soldier in a guard tower looking out over the horizon with binoculars. Back in late spring, my family and I took a couple days to go to Cape May, New Jersey. And one of the interesting things that we got to see there in Cape May, which is the very southern tip of the Cape May, um, there, is, there are guard towers, lookout towers. These lookout towers were built during World War II, specifically around 1942, as part of the defenses against German submarines in an effort to protect the Delaware River, which becomes the Delaware Bay, which connects to the Atlantic Ocean. It was important for them to protect this river and this river system because it led directly to Philadelphia. So if they were able to get 
German submarines, also known as U-boats, up through that river, or German battleships up through that river, they could attack Philadelphia and never even have to get off the boat. So this is a very important area that needed to be guarded. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to say a fact and I'll see if, raise your hand if you were aware of this. I was not aware of this. So, were you aware that the United States lost approximately one boat per week during World War II to German submarines off the coast of the United States? Raise your hand if you were aware that we lost one boat a week to German submarines off the East Coast. Okay, Luke is the only World War II history buff here right now. I'm very disappointed in the rest of you. Um, yeah, so I didn't know that. I didn't realize that, and these are like shipping, but like not, not battleships, but just like cruise ships and freight ships and just regular boats that are being sunk once a week, or one a week, because I guess they'd only sink it once, but off the East Coast. So this is a huge problem. There were a lot of German submarines all across the east coast of the United States. The situation was much more precarious than we think. We think, oh, they were just doing battle over in like Normandy and they were like dealing with some islands over the Pacific Ocean. But no, the enemies, Germany in particular, is right there within a couple miles off the coast, even potentially within a few hundred yards off the coast. They were very, very close. And so because of this, they built these watchtowers to look, to be on the alert. The idea of watchmen on the wall was a constant theme or a common theme in the Old Testament. Isaiah 62.6 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. This is not just speaking of military things, though. This is actually speaking about prophets. The prophets of Israel, which were the people who were to put the Lord in remembrance, both to speak to God on behalf of the people, but also to speak to the people on behalf of God, to put God in the memories, in the minds, in the remembrance of the people. And he's saying, take no rest. Don't fall asleep as you are on the walls. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6, this, this whole section addresses this watchman situation. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and then blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of the watchman's hand. In other words, there's watchmen on the wall. If the watchmen see the danger coming, they blow the trumpet and the people ignore it, that's on them. If the watchman sees the danger coming, sees the army coming, and he decides not to blow the trumpet, that's on him. In other words, the watchman bears a responsibility to do something, to take action when he sees this danger. It is unacceptable for the watchman to see the danger and say, you know what? I left my trumpet downstairs, and I'm kind of tired, and it's raining out. 
And actually, it's kind of icy too, and those steps look scary. And I'm just going to stay up here in my tower, and I hope the rest of them can just figure it out. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. If the watchman sees the danger approaching, he has to say something. And if he doesn't say something, his, his blood is on his own hands. He bears responsibility to warn the people. Now, beyond this military metaphor in ancient Israel and the prophet's situation, the call to be watchful is also central to a pastor's task. A pastor is a term that refers to a shepherd of sheep. And that's one of the many metaphors used to describe the church. So as a shepherd of sheep, a pastor is responsible to be on the lookout for wolves and lions, as well as for sheep that are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He's supposed to be looking and watchful. This job also requires enough discernment to tell the difference between wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing, and sheep that bite and are as mean as wolves. Because all of this is found, sometimes within the local church, but it's all found in a society. And so a pastor must have discernment to tell the difference between these categories. The book of Hebrews is a sermon given to early Christians. And in chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, it is of advantage to you. There is, the Bible speaks very frequently about heavenly rewards. There, there is advantage to you to make your pastor's job a joy. The pastor's task of watchfulness necessarily involves having an alertness to see what dangers are on the horizon. These dangers are often in the form of theological fads and trends that appear out of nowhere and then sweep away large portions of the church to follow after these destructive teachings. It happens about every six months in Christianity in the United States. There's a whole new thing that blows up out of nowhere and sweeps up countless Christians. Christians who have no discernment are caught up by every charlatan. Is Omar here? Omar's not here. I'm sad. Because he, he pronounced the word charlatan in a very Spanish way at small group a few weeks ago. And I just really appreciated how he said the word charlatan. Christians who have no discernment are caught up by every charlatan that starts a podcast and strives to build a following by seeking to divide good church members from faithful pastors in biblical churches. That's the pattern. It's the same pattern from biblical days to the present. So a pastor must be alert to those sheep with especially itchy ears. Not all sheep are the same. Remember John Benzinger's sermon about all this. You can't treat everybody the same because not everybody's the same. So you have to be alert. Who are the sheep that want to follow? Who are the sheep that want to fight? Who are the sheep that just love getting lost? And you got to be alert to that and be watchful. Who are the sheep that love getting lost and then will attack you when you go find them and then make you think, well, maybe this is a wolf? You must be watchful for these sheep that every six to 12 months are wandering away into packs of wolves. Be watchful is this first exhortation. Now, bringing in points, well, point two, which I have packaged 
point two, three, and four into one big point because they're thematically very similar, even though, yes, there is a difference between these following words. Uh, it says, stand fast in the faith, act like a man, be a man, or my new King James says, be brave. And then the last word is, be strong. So watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. These words, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be, be strong, are technically, there, there's some nuance of difference between standing fast and being brave and being strong, but the ideas are close enough that we're not going to bother trying to split hairs between standing fast and being brave. You have to be brave to stand fast. You need, you need to be strong to stand fast. So for your sake this morning, just I encourage you to think of these three terms as connected very, very strongly, very closely. Without an accurate understanding of the nature of reality and a clear framework to view the world around you, standing fast will be a wasted effort. Let me reread that because I'm distracted even being here, so I'm sure some of you are struggling. Without an accurate understanding of the nature of reality and a clear framework to view the world around you, some would call that a worldview or a coherent theological system, without those things, Standing fast will be wasted effort. What do I mean? Well, watchfulness, point one, awareness, is necessary before the second step is meaningful and good. So if you are not watchful, then there's no point in standing fast. Because you're standing fast in error. You're standing fast, but you're wrong. You're standing fast in false doctrine and false teaching and delusions. So you have to have point one first. You've got to be watchful. You've got to have your head screwed on straight, your face pointing the right direction. Otherwise, if you're going backwards, but now you're going to stand firm in that, now you're in more trouble than before you were standing firm. So watchfulness and awareness... These are both necessary before the second step is meaningful and good. Raise your hand if you ever were in like a school orchestra or band or some sort of a group of musicians trying to coordinate together. Okay. They said things like, the right note at the wrong time is the wrong note. The wrong note at the right time is the wrong note. So you need the right note at the right time. Played in the right way in order to be the right note. We must not only be watchful, but we must also stand. And we must stand for the right causes. Courageous conviction and a spine of steel must be combined with sound discernment and right watchfulness. Courageous conviction and a spine of steel must be combined with sound discernment and right watchfulness. Have you ever known someone who had a right worldview? They had sound doctrine. They were watchful. They had a good understanding of the issues, but they had no willingness to take a stand. They said, well, I, I understand the issues, but I'm just not very brave. I understand the issues, but I don't want to, I don't fight. I don't stand up. I don't speak up. Yes, I see what's going on around me, but I'm not going to be the one to say anything. I can't say anything bad about anything bad, even though I'm aware of it. Their response is, I'm not brave, I'm not a leader. Someone else can, can, is going to have to speak up, because I can't. 
There are people in our church who have sound judgment and good discernment, but you lack willingness to stand fast. Perhaps it is out of fear of man or lack of confidence or the presence of self-doubt. Maybe it's pride disguised as humility, not wanting to be viewed as one of those people, not wanting to be the bad cop, the unpopular person in the crowd who stands up and stands up and speaks out. There are people like that here. But beyond the wise Christian who's timid, who's fearful, perhaps like Timothy in the Bible, have you known a Christian who has great boldness, but no understanding? The opposite of this. They've got a spine of steel, but they're always fighting for the wrong cause and really fighting on the wrong team. This is the one who is sometimes right, always confident. They lead with great boldness. They lead with great confidence. But, man, they're just always wrong. And then when you correct them, they fight you on it. And then you have to persuade them. And it takes 12 hours. It takes a whole bunch of really long meetings to finally get them to see the light of day. Because they're fighting you on this whole thing. And then eventually you get them turned around straight and pointed in the right direction. Their head screwed on straight. These are people where the word I don't know is not part of their vocabulary. They think they know everything and they're full of boisterous self-confidence, yet they are clueless. I met a young man a few months ago who's 25 going on 15. And he said, people say I'm proud, but I'm not proud. I'm just confident. He's not here today, so you're trying to figure out who it is. He's not part of our church. These courageous soldiers must be fighting the right battles. Otherwise, it's a destructive outcome. It's more harmful than if they didn't even fight at all. Now, this, on this point, there's a great difficulty because the timid person who is timid but wise is likely to acknowledge that they are too often afraid to speak up. The person who's wise but fearful, they'll own it. They'll say, yeah, I should have said something, but I didn't. I'm afraid to speak up. But the person who is bold but a fool thinks he's wise. He thinks he's the picture of wisdom. So that type of person is much more difficult. Now, before we move on, stand fast in the faith, be brave. Be strong. It's not just standing fast. It's not just standing fast for your pet topics or things that you're interested in. But it is standing fast in the faith. Stand fast in the faith. This expression, in the faith, is referring to the Christian faith. If you're new today, welcome. Glad that you're here. Thank you, Nate. I feel like I should start over again with this entire sermon. <laughs> um, stand fast in the faith. We are to prioritize standing fast in the faith. Not everything that you believe is of equal importance. Not everything that you have an opinion about is of equal importance. Hopefully you are aware of that. Hopefully you can acknowledge that. There are things that we believe which we believe very strongly, and then there are things that we believe a little less strong, and then there are things that we believe that we uh, hope that we're right on, but we really, if we're honest, are, uh, it could go either way. 
Bible doesn't tell us to stand fast in these issues, which are maybe fourth or fifth tier issues, but to stand fast in the faith. We can agree to disagree on a wide range of issues, but those things which are central to the faith are issues which we cannot and will not budge on in the local church. If there's anything to be a stickler for, if there's anything to be assertive and dogmatic and unflinching about in the local church, it is those things which are central to the faith. And when I say central to the faith, I mean central to salvation. That's what it's talking about. I'm not saying that other issues don't matter. I'm not saying that third-tier issues and fourth-tier issues don't matter. In the, the common framework that most Christian leaders use to think about these things, they view it as second, third, and first, second, and third tier issues with an expression called theological triage. I'm not crazy about the expression for reasons which you don't have time to get into, but first tier issues would be issues that you must believe in order to be saved. Now, what fits on that list is also up for debate. There are things which I believe are first-tier issues that you can be wrong on and still be saved, but not too many people will be saved after you if you're wrong on that issue. And then second-tier issues are issues that you must be on the same page on in order to be part of the same local church. Don't worry, I'll give some examples here in a moment. Second-tier issues are things you have to believe in order to be part of that church. And then third-tier issues are issues that would be considered you can agree to disagree on those issues. Now, Really, only the second one are are things that I believe are pretty clear. But even that, you get five pastors, you have five different views on what those things are. But I'll give you some examples of my opinion. So first tier issues. I think I wrote some of these, but I'm not sure where they are in my notes. Oh, Trinitarianism. You have to believe that. Now, unfortunately, in our world today... (laughs) The definition of Trinitarianism is, is dramatically up in the air, and it's gone sideways. But you, you have to have this right. You have to have biblically faithful Orthodox Trinitarianism. Second, sound Christology, your doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is. To put a subpoint under that, when we speak of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both God and man in his incarnation, truly God, truly man, you have to have that right. There can be no distortion on that. Thirdly, justification by faith alone. This is an essential. You must be right on this. Otherwise, according to Galatians, you're following a false religion and you are headed for hell. Paul literally says, let him be accursed if somebody brings a different doctrine than this. The fourth one that I've listed here is the bodily resurrection. The idea that Jesus truly rose from the dead. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. The next point, a clear understanding of regeneration. You got to understand not only what salvation is, but how it works. Otherwise, you're going to be leading people off into wonky ideas. Now, this is one of those things that do you have to understand regeneration in order to be regenerated? Well, no, you don't. But if you don't understand how regeneration works, not too many people are going to end up getting regenerated because of you. So it's one of those like first tier issues that some would say, some would say, oh, it's a second tier issue. Now, second tier issues would be those things which you must believe to be a part of a particular local church. Now, as I said, 
Five pastors will view this five different ways, but this is, let me explain the common way of viewing it, which is you have to believe in or agree to the way that local church does church. So for us, baptism is one of those things. Other churches, baptism is not one of those things. Other churches, they're open on baptism. They'll do whatever and they don't really care. You can be dunked or sprinkled or poured or <laughs> you can be sprinkled as a baby. You can be sprinkled as an adult. You can be sprinkled as an unbelieving adult and you're fine. You can be baptized as a Christian. You can be dunked as a Christian. You can be dunked as a baby. They don't care. Then there are other views where within that community of views, there's subdivisions of that as well where they... Um, are stronger on different points. But a, a Baptist church holds to believers' baptism. If they don't hold to believers' baptism, if they're open on baptism, they're not actually Baptist. So if you want to be a member of this church, you have to be baptized, dunked, by immersion as a, as a Christian. There are some others which I... They're coming to me now. Um, qualifications for being a pastor. Some churches believe that you can have female pastors. And that's an issue that in our society today is so contentious and so like inflammatory. I just can't imagine someone joining a church that has a different view on that. It certainly isn't the case here, and I, don't, I can't imagine it being the case anywhere else. If you hold to male-only pastors, why are you at a church that is egalitarian? I just, I don't think that that would, would happen. Uh, there are other things that could fall into this second tier category, um, denominational affiliations and, and things like that. The third tier would be things that people can agree to disagree on or can have different views on and still be part of the same church. Um, I'm going to list some practical things that are not theological because I haven't really made a list recently on this. But let's say um, schooling preferences for your children. So homeschool, Christian school, public school, private school, private classical school, uh, some sort of hybrid of all of the above. You can have a different view of that and be a part of this church. Different people have different views on that within this church. There are people here who would say, I would never, ever in a million years send my kid to a public school. And there are kids in the room who go to public schools. And Lord willing, I, I trust, I believe that we're all kind of getting along and, and not <laughs> making that a point of contention. Another, since I'm on the subject from this morning's announcement, uh, and my wife is very passionate about this, would be the, the issue or topic of methods of childbirth. People have very strongly held different views of this. Some are horrified that you would have a home birth, and others are horrified that you would not have a home birth. And these people are both in the same church. There are people who are just flabbergasted that you would have a C-section and epidurals, and all the other things. But you can have different views on those things and be part of this church. Same with dietary things. You can, you can be a carnivore, you can be a vegetarian. I'm not sure you can be a vegan, though, and be here. <laughs> um, apparently, one of my nieces is a vegetarian. I found this out this week. I'm like, what? But I tried not to harass her about it, because she's like nine years old, and she's telling me she doesn't like meat. And I was like, oh. There's some kinds of meat I don't like either. I really like casseroles. What, what kind of casserole do you like? So we talked about green bean casserole and we had a good time. 
But so there, there, there are first level issues, second level issues, and third level issues. Those first level issues are the, the essentials of the faith. You have to believe in that, otherwise you're not a Christian. Second level issues are things you have to be in agreement with your local church on. Otherwise, if they have any backbone whatsoever, they're not going to let you join that church if you are on the other side of that issue. And then third level issues would be things that just might matter to you personally, but in the grand scheme of things, 10,000 years from now, they really don't matter. So, stand fast in the faith. Watchfulness and proper discernment helps you understand which things are essential to stand fast on and things that you, frankly, shouldn't worry about. There are people that are very passionate about their third-tier issues, their homeschooling preferences and their whatever, all those other things, but they don't give a rip about first- or second-level issues. They say, hey, I don't really care so much about theology, but let me talk to you about my curriculum that my kid is homeschooled with. I'm not like targeting women for women's sake, but women, this is a thing that is more, your, your, your species is more prone to. To say, hey, what? It's a Calvinist church, an Arminian church. I don't really care. But what I do care about is whether it was a home birth or not. Stand fast in the faith. And our third point, proper motives proper motives. The proper motive that Paul is driving at here is love. He says in verse 14, let all things be done in love. Yeah, let all that you do be done with love. Why do people do the things that they do? What drives them? What drives you? Why are you here? Well, there's a a number of different reasons. I'll give a few. But sometimes people do things for greed. When I say, why are you here? I don't necessarily mean in this room. There's not really a lot of money to be made in this room. But some business people have realized that churches are good social connecting points where they can get potential clients and they can network. Or in former decades, you had to be a part of a local church if you wanted your business to succeed at at all because you had to be considered a Christian in your society. Otherwise, your society would never vote for you, go to your business, or even consider you a civilized person. My hometown that I grew up in, there was a major scandal um, when in high school, the Little League president announced that she was not only a lesbian, but she was also an atheist. There was a shockwave that was felt all across our town that night. People texting and calling people and being like, Jane Smith says she's a lesbian and an atheist. And anybody who's paying any attention at all already knew both of those things. But this was a scandal in my hometown of Florida about 10 years ago. And it's still that way in some places. It's not that way here, in case you hadn't noticed, in New York York City. But sometimes greed is people's motivation for doing things. Whether it be their motivation for being in New York City. Hey, we're just here for business stuff. We're just here to make money. That's the reason why New York City exists in the first place. They started this city 400 years ago to make money. This person motivated by greed would say, I I do what I do, or maybe they would think it. I do what I do to make as much money as possible. It's profit at all costs, and I don't care who I have to destroy to get ahead. Other people have different motives. They maybe maybe not greed, but maybe jealousy. There's a jealous fire that burns within you. Comparison fuels your every move. When you get dressed in the morning, you're not getting dressed for you or your spouse or your family, you're getting dressed because you want to be better than someone at the office. 
You will be the best. And the fact that you're not the best gnaws away at your soul. You can't think of another person without immediately thinking in terms of who's better than who in different ways. Whether this is some sort of academic thing in the classroom setting, or it has to do with fitness, or looks, or athletics, or sports teams, or whatever. There's this driving jealousy that motivates some of you. A third thing that motivates some is anger. For this person, a quick fuse defines you. You carry a chip on your shoulder that's so big that it's the size of your ego. When someone slights you or cuts you off, they better watch out because you can't just let things go. This is the person who has to have the last word. They have to give them the peace of their mind. They can't think a thought without it immediately coming out of their mouth or their fingers. This person is highly skilled at tearing people down. I once knew someone who uh, was a former boss of mine about 14 years ago. Not to be too specific, but and we won't say his last name, but his last name was synonymous with getting um, screamed at for 30 minutes straight, extremely degraded in front of a whole, whole room full of people. Um, who shall we pick on? Let's, let's pick on Luke. So uh, you have a unique last name. So let's say um, that you were this person. So in this situation, let's say that um, um, Giselle was the one who was working for Luke at his place of employment, and you did something wrong. Let's say you didn't recharge the, um, the golf cart. And when Luke went out in the morning to drive the golf cart, he found it dead. And he asked. He instantly erupted in rage, but it was still maintained somewhat. His face was red, and he's asking everybody around him, who didn't charge the golf cart? Well, because it was uncharged, everybody didn't charge the golf cart. But he's trying to find out the person who's responsible for not charging the golf cart. And so he asks and asks, because he can't let it go. He finally finds the person who did it, and it turns out it was Giselle who drove it last night, and she didn't charge the golf cart. So in this, in this made-up story that's not made up, but it doesn't involve these people, Luke goes storming over to Giselle, grabs her by her shirt collar, drags her back in front of the whole room full of people, and proceeds to yell at her so loud it could be heard multiple properties away from this location. And um, we, privately, the rest of the staff, called that getting Walscoed. So his last name is Walsco. If that doesn't make sense, uh, switch it to um, Trenton. Um, <laughs> getting Hargraved. Because this was a thing. It was the worst threat that could happen to you, is, is having your boss scream at you for 30 minutes straight in front of the entire staff. Now I recognize that's actually called abuse, and uh, that's not okay. Um, but some people are motivated by anger. A quick temper defines them. They're not ready to forgive or ready to give grace when a mistake is made or the golf cart is not charged or someone forgets to put the sign out in front of the church or doesn't turn on the air conditioning or forgets to plug the drain in the baptistry so they turn around by the end of the service and lo and behold, there's no water left. And instead of saying, well, it's okay, I'm sure you didn't mean it on purpose, or even if you did mean it on purpose, like we're not going to scream at you in front of people because we don't do that. But some people do. And for those people, anger is what motivates them. It's what, it's what they get up for in the morning. Their anger is what drives them. Another motive would be hatred. Now, you might think that hatred and anger are the same thing. Well, they're not exactly the same thing, and this is a point where I'll spend some time. 
In hatred, in your heart of hearts, you loathe the other person. While anger is often driven by by what someone does, hatred is more often targeted at who a person is. So in my anger situation, Luke is mad at Giselle because she left the uh, golf cart unplugged and it was not charged in the next morning. But in the hatred situation, when she leaves the golf cart unplugged and he finds out about it, he brings up all these personal accusations. You're a worthless person. (laughs) I'm not going to go further in my made-up things. Uh, This this gets dark real quick. Um, Hatred involves the demonization of the other person. It involves viewing them in the worst possible light. It assumes the worst, and it hopes for the worst. So let's lighten the mood dramatically. Think of sports. You're angry, and if I get this wrong, Luke, correct me, but uh, other Luke, you're angry because Michigan beat OSU. If you're, you're, you're delighted. Um, I don't know if we have any uh, Ohio people here this morning. Um, my wife is from Ohio, but she doesn't care. Um, <laughs> so you're angry because Mich- Michigan beat Ohio, but you hate Michigan because they are Michigan. There's hatred towards them before the game even begins. After the game ends, you're angry that they beat your team. And so you can see the difference between anger and hate. Do you find yourself scrolling social media accounts of people that you loathe and thinking hateful thoughts of them that are distinctly personal in nature? Thinking thoughts like, I hate him. Look at the way he or she dresses. He wears those white New Balance sneakers, and he pulls his socks up to his knees. He tucks his t-shirt into his cargo shorts. His stupid grin belongs on a clown. I despise everything about him, and I hate the idea that he might possibly be happy. That's called hate. That's what it looks like to hate somebody. It can look a lot of other things, too, but that's just one so hatred drives some people. That is why some people get up in the morning. It's, it's what they think about all day long. They're consumed by hatred. The next one is revenge. Revenge as a motive often begins with, begins with a very long, very old story. You accidentally say something nice about another person or organization, and suddenly you find yourself getting a free lecture on the history of their faults and failures. It starts like this. The situation I'm describing is something that comes from my academic background because one of the institutions I attended, there was a story that started just the way this is about to start. Well, in 1957, he made this decision to partner with certain Christian groups, and -and so-and-so called him and told him that these were wrong decisions, and he said that he disagreed with with this perspective because in his action, it was the best opportunity to reach people for Christ. So... The person in question, or the person on our our side, told him, you will never amount to anything, and don't come crying to me when you crash and burn and your organization collapses. And now, when we look across the street and see that other organization, that other church, whatever it may be, filled to overflowing with joyful, kind, Jesus-loving Christians, and our children ask us why they can't go jump in their bounce house at VBS or get a free snow snow cone for the church's fall festival, your response begins the following way. Well, in 1957, when that 
churches or organizations, former pastor made the decision that your grandfather disagreed with, and he called him to give him a piece of his mind, and so on and so forth. Friends, this stuff happens all the time. It happens in history, and it happens in the modern world. It has happened many times in the history of countless Christian organizations. As a professor of mine once said, the only thing dirtier than politics is religion. And he was a professor at one of the highest, high, most highly regarded seminaries in the country. Revenge drives some people. That's why they do what they do, because they want to get back at somebody else. And the last negative motive that I'm going to mention is what we call daddy issues or mama trauma. So back to the question of motives. What drives you? For the person who it's daddy issues or mama trauma, it might look like this. My dad said I wasn't good enough. My mom said she liked my older sister better. My dad said that no man would ever want me because I was ugly. My mom said I would never be successful. So here I am to prove her wrong. Her hurtful words echo through my mind every day. My parents' words of shame and criticism and condemnation are permanently imprinted on my brain, and I can never forget them. So I will prove them wrong, and I will show them. I will be the best. I will be the most successful. I will make a name for myself. I will get the top grades. I will get into the most elite schools in order to have the top job so that I can prove to myself, even if my parents are not around, I will prove that my parents were wrong. And then, maybe, they'll be proud of me. Then, they will love me. Some people are motivated by these types of things, these sort of tragic family issues. But what Paul says in this text, in verse 14, he says that let everything be done in love. Let everything be done out of love. Let everything that be done, be done motivated by love. Not anger, not revenge, not hatred, not... Uh, getting back at your parents. Love as a motive stands in stark contrast to these other things. Now, perhaps the Lord has used some bad motives to bring you here. Maybe you're in New York City for some of these not so holy motives, but you're here today and we're glad that you're here. Whatever it was that caused you to pursue that career, or caused you to pursue that choice in education, or whatever it may be, I want you to know that there's an opportunity today to switch gears, to, to switch your operating system from being operating out of anger or love or anger or revenge or hatred or jealousy to begin to operate out of love. Love stands in stark contrast to these motives. It is love that motivates all the things that Paul is calling us to in our text. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. The expression be brave uh, in your Bibles probably says act like a man. Why are you supposed to stand fast in the faith? Why are you supposed to be watchful and vigilant looking for lions and wolves that are trying to destroy the body of Christ? Well, you're supposed to be those things, watchful, strong, firm in the faith, brave, courageous. You're supposed to do all of those things because of love. It is love that should motivate and compel all of this. It was love that compelled our triune God into the covenant of redemption. 
For those who are new, what I'm talking about is salvation. It's because of love that God sent his son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is because of the son's love for you that he came into the world. It was out of love that the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world to save sinners such as yourself. And it was out of love for sinners that Jesus came into the world to redeem our woeful, miserable, and pathetic humanity. Beyond that, though, it was out of love for God's glory that each person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made this covenant of redemption. It was because they loved the glory of God. You must recognize that false and destructive teachings detract from the glory of God. That's the reason why we must stand fast. We must be watchful. We must be bold and brave and courageous. Because these false doctrines that are always on the offensive, they're always trying to creep in, we must be watchful because those false doctrines take away from the glory of God. They lead people astray. People who love God and people whom God loves. People that we love. So we must be watchful and vigilant. There are always wolves with perverted agendas on the prowl. And they look at the flock and they try to spot the weak and isolated and sickly sheep. They look for the sheep that really aren't interested in sticking with the flock or really not interested in keeping near the shepherd. And the sheeps that, sheeps, the sheep that have little to no regard for the shepherd's voice or words of warning. Those are the ones that the wolves target and they get them. They get them nine out of ten times. These wandering sheep are the ones who are snatched up by cults and con men and criminals. And I'm sorry for the alliteration, but this happens, and it has happened at our church. There are always cult leaders roaming around New York City trying to get people to come do their thing or join their... Mother God cults or some kind of other weird thing. There are always con men claiming to be Christians, claiming to be Christian leaders, trying to draw people in to be part of their thing. And then there are even criminals with these same types of agendas. It might be white-collar crime. It might be fraud. It might be um, financial scandals. But these wandering sheep, they're the ones that the wolves target and go after. The motivation of love is what drives all of this. And we see the importance of this love in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. And so we have this message today, love's final appeal. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use these words to strengthen your people, to encourage them to stand firm in the faith, to be watchful, to be courageous. That they would do these things because of the love that you have demonstrated for us, by sending your own son. That they would make these decisions to stand fast in the faith because of love for your glory and your honor and desire to see that glory protected in the local church. 
that it would be truly love that motivates, not anger, not revenge, not jealousy. Lord, I thank you now for this time of baptisms that we are moving into. I thank you for the people that you have brought uh, to faith in Christ, that they are able to be here today and to be baptized. And I pray um, your blessing on each of them. In Jesus' name, amen.